I'm so popular. Last week on the show, we discussed Katy Perry's witness in an all-hands-on-deck firestorm episode, one for the centuries, and tonight we are prepping for what is going to be probably my most pretentious episode of all time, and I've been dying to talk about um, what we're speaking about today, which is William Shakespeare's The Tragedy of Julius Caesar and some musical pieces by the French composer Maurice Ravel, who has really touched my life in a significant way over the past a few months, and uh, it's really a crucial exorcism that we get this out of my system. But we're joined by a special guest today for the very first time. Who are you? I'm doing great. Hi, thank you. I'm really happy to be here, really happy to talk about Ravel and talk about Julius Caesar. This is... Um... Oh, that's funny that you said you thought I said, how are you? I said, who are you? <laughs> oh, who am I? <laughs> I'm, we're off to a really great start. Hi, um, so I'm uh, Miles. I have um, a Twitter account, um, Bartaki and Nightmare, that I will probably be deleting a lot of tweets from in the next couple of days because I tend no, to no. say a lot of embarrassing, stupid shit. Um, I am um, a musicology PhD candidate um, at a uh, school in Western New York, um, and I, I teach music history to undergrads. Um, I'm currently teaching a course on early music. Um, the survey course actually covers um, 800 to 1750, so it's uh, just a simple 900 years in one semester. Um, cool. It does not cover um, what we're talking about today, so I'm very excited about being able to talk about some music that I usually don't get the chance to because um, my school usually puts me in the early music box for some reason. I love that. But um, yeah, that's mainly it. I I have been studying classical music for a a really long time. I've been playing it since I was eight. Um, I'm a pianist. I studied it in undergrad and... um, it it was sort of the primary music that I was really passionate about. Um, I would say like consistently throughout my whole life, starting when I was really young. Um, and now I um, have in the past few years um, returned to school and, and now doing a PhD in musicology. So it's really become a very, um, you know, huge like omnipresent aspect of my life. And um, it's um, been it's been interesting to observe the different ways that different people are continuing to come to classical music, um, primarily through the way streaming has made this all a lot easier for people to get access mm-hmm. to. And um, Yeah, that, 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 that's enough about me. You can ask questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, wonderful to meet you. This is actually the first time, I think, this season that I've had a guest on who I haven't previously spoken with, which I used to do a lot more in the early run of the podcast, so it's always fun to make new friends. It always feels very cozy to me, but I have to ask you my other two signature questions. What are you yes. doing? 
Like, 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 just in, in general, like, or what? Like, you can answer however you please. <laughs> what, what, what am I doing? I am trying to, like, keep my brain um, from collapsing through under all the grading that I have to do right now. That's like <laughs> cute. I'm, I'm like keeping myself like trying to like keep myself sane through the um, mountain of like just papers and assignments and stuff that just at this particular semester that's kind of what um my day-to-day is like it's like just uh um com- daily like compartmentalization of um like lesson planning and grading and then also trying to do my own like research stuff which is um, yeah of course own, own, like situation but yeah that that's that's like what i'm doing i am uh i am i am trying to keep my brain together <laughs> Well, let's see how that goes. Um, and my third and final question <laughs> is, why do you follow me? Um, <laughs> I follow you because, because I, uh, because I agree with, um, almost like everything you say, a lot of the things you say about pop culture, some of which I don't really quite, um, always like know the references to because there are things i don't know about but i follow you because it's um you express yourself in a very like unapologetic and florid manner when you when you're <laughs> opinions and i really and i think that that's a really like important type of like gay artistic expression where a lot of yeah, and everyone, everyone loves to qualify their shit everyone loves to say um the thing I hate the most is when you, and and you you find this a lot in classical music, where where mm-hmm. people like over intellectualize their opinions, and they'll say things like, um, "What in your opinion is like the best piece by such and such composer?" And they will say, "Well, I understand that even though this one probably is the best, I think my favorite is this." And there's this like equivocation of like your of like, you know, your personal taste vis a vis like what you think is like you know, what everyone else is supposed to agree upon. And mm. I feel like with you, it's like, it's it's much more like straightforward. You will just say, no, I think this is bad because I don't fucking like it. And I think this is great and the best because I do like it. And I feel like that's the way people are supposed to communicate when they're doing like cultural commentary. And when they are like, like you, you really, your own opinions, your own, you know, impressions and things that are, are are the reality about what this is there is no like well i understand people that, no it's like fuck off like let, let, like this it is what i say it is you know and that's that's surprisingly prescient for what we're talking about today and i really appreciate the wonderful comment <laughs> thank you i'm glad i i mean something like that but um we are talking about um julius caesar and mirrors by ravel later and to me all of these are about perception and representation and the experiencing the experience of witnessing and seeing and the various realities that clash with each other so i'm glad that my tweets feel real (laughs) um kind of the the key quote from julius caesar is um the classic for the eye sees not itself but by reflection by some other things so I'm glad that we're cutting through the reflections here and the eye is just seeing the tweets about pop culture, <laughs> but um, I really desperately wanted to talk about Shakespeare in depth for ages. Um, he's been haunting the show since the first season because I really got so much 
in my youth from uh, flipping through the enormous um, hardbound a, a version of every Shakespeare play that existed uh, that my mom gave me. It was a big $40 used copy uh, one year in middle school. And I remember becoming obsessed with Titus Andronicus and Hamlet and Macbeth. And they all, to me, were kind of like the precursors of all human archetype. And to this day, I really think that you can open almost any Shakespeare play and see what is possibly the most expansive gamut of human existence. And so whenever I'm in turmoil or I'm trying to reframe things around my life, I find that going back to the originator of uh, what I think is like all Western, like human archetype, <laughs> I always go back to Shakespeare. And uh, before we started recording uh, properly, you mentioned to me that uh, this is your first time coming back to him in some whiles. So what did yes. you get out of revisiting Shakespeare? Um, what I got out of him was that he, um, I, I was very impressed with the way, with the way you were able to really learn about like the content of certain characters of like, mm -hmm. they're like, like, just their own personal um, morals and their like level of like intellectualism very quickly on by the differing way that he had them like expressing themselves. I was really fascinated by um, the contrast between the way common people spoke and between the way the like patricians like spoke and the way the, the people and just the, um, and, and just the way that it, actually um i just found that the i i'd always remembered shakespeare as feeling kind of obscure feeling kind of like you know oh, there's many like but i actually found that the characters were very vivid and very very quite um really like rendered in ways that you didn't have to dig too hard under into their motivations it was that it was actually yeah it was actually, totally uh, yeah I, mean, I know exactly what you're talking about. Like, I feel like when I um, really started getting back into him again after university, I try to read at least um, two or three plays by him every year um, that I haven't already. And actually, I hadn't read Julius Caesar until this year. It was okay. my first time. And uh, it always baffles me that when people approach Shakespeare, they always imagine that it's like some kind of like highfalutin, lofty, inaccessible, and very abstracted, murky narrative when in fact it is like these blistering and extraordinarily well-defined characters with all of their own interior universes. They're so lyrical and human that when you're reading them, they feel totally alive and it's watching these extraordinarily well-defined uh, people clash with each other in ways that feel so accurate to any human who's ever felt emotion. I really feel like one of the reasons people can't engage with Shakespeare is not anything like the language or anything, but because people are so shut off to their own emotional experience. And so they can't relate to these grandiose and overstated explosions of feeling. Uh, but meanwhile, little sentimental me goes through any of these and starts like 
weeping and like breaking apart um, on the train with my little Folgers copy of it. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, ab- absolutely. It's like um, it. I, I think that is also it too. I think people are um, not very just receptive to this particular mode of like characters being able to express themselves like in a very like lengthy way. They, I think, people have become so. Um, I think people just want like the verisimilitude of drama to really mm. like map. They want it to map on linguistically as much as possible. They want it to. They they really now think that like something that is real and something is relatable needs to really sound like human speech, and they can't really conceive of maybe the if the manner of speech is not typical of the way people generally talk the emotions that are being expressed through that manner of speech and the the like caliber of like their like you know the the lyricism in the way that they're expressing it um is actually like um something that is extremely real and should be extremely relatable for a lot of people if they're able to um just recognize that it's not trying to do the same thing that i think um people think modern drama is meant to do yeah i think that's definitely the case and the elevation and aestheticization of the characters gives you this uh really like overstated and like obviously theatrical but by turning the feelings into something that's like so poetic and gorgeous and um really like flies off the page when you're reading it. People always say, oh, Shakespeare doesn't mean anything unless you're seeing it live, but I actually love reading it. It feels so well, good to sit I, and read I, I it. Actually, I'll actually say that in in prepar- prepping for this, after reading this, I then went and watched um, one of the like many BBC like versions, and I found that it actually was a lot harder to follow when acted out. And I think a lot of the... Um, I think a lot of the unintelligibility that people perceive in Shakespeare is in the fact that sometimes it is actually just delivered in a way that is kind of inscrutable. They speak mm. very, very fast in a lot of it. They've um, There are certain like conventions of like speech delivery that Shakespearean actors have adapted over years that I think have... Um, I think they have kind of crystallized into their own thing that may or may not have anything to do with the way this is meant to be presented anyway. So yeah, I, totally. I Shakespearean aesthetics, quote unquote, <laughs> like orthodox Shakespearean aesthetics of like drama um, might actually be hindering people from being able to actually like read it and just kind of hear them kind of singing in their head while they're reading it as opposed to yeah. hearing yeah. I think I think that that's exactly right because I remember they did um, a Macbeth adaptation somewhat recently with Michael Fassbender that I thought was just an abortion. It was so yeah. atrocious and yeah. unpleasant to sit through. Um, when it comes to Shakespeare adaptations, I think like the golden age was like fifties and sixties um, when we got stuff like Elizabeth Taylor in. Taming of the Shrew, and uh, Marlon Brando played Antony in uh, Julius Caesar, and those, like, struck, like, the right mix of showy, um, like, mid-century, 20th century, like, sort of, like, transatlantic speak, and, like, the overacting of that era with the Shakespeare, so that 
it's very slow and pronounced and you can really sink into it, but it doesn't work so well in film these days. But all of this is just to say, if you haven't tried to read any Shakespeare in the last like year or two and you're um, an aspiring I'm so popular asty, you are bound by law to pick yeah. one up that you haven't read before and give it a try uh, because these characters are all going to really resound with you in ways uh, that you'd never expect. Um, every single play he's ever written is so far-reaching and cosmic and attempts to swallow every aspect of human life into its exaggerated, gorgeous theatricality, and I wish more people had this <laughs> as an active part of their lives. It really helps you pierce the veil and see things more truly. Yeah, and, and also I just, you know... Um you'll find in reading Shakespeare that there are so many little, like what you would consider extraneous moments, like transitional parts with characters that never appear again and things like that. And these are extremely fascinating. And mm, I think so too. Like, like I, that was the things that really, um, the, I thought the first scene um, in Julius Caesar was, was one of the things that really stuck with me the most because I was just so struck by the contrast between um, the people in the street and the like senators who were, you know, talking with them and just this, you know, you, again, usually it's like, you know, you, you think of these particular moments as the, it's like, they're just kind of setting the scene, they're setting it up. And then the big characters are finally going to enter, but this actually really revealed um, a significant amount about like the problems with the co-conspirators and the reason why their project was so fraught and um, so alienated from yeah. what people. It's really interesting, I think. And to briefly introduce it to people who aren't familiar, yeah. this is um, one of the histories and it's a tragedy. So this is a play that reimagines the, a very well-known death of Julius Caesar and his assassination on the Ides of March. And the play follows mostly Brutus and Antony as they um, are involved in this plot to kill Julius Caesar. It's a lot about like the moral reckoning and the kind of decision-making that goes into this assassination and then the fallout um, after his death in which um, the realized world and the aspired utopia that these conspirators have come up with becomes um, immediately violent and horrific and gruesome. I think this is one of the most tense like Shakespeare plays. I think it is actually terrifying at parts and there is especially in the first three acts, a relentless sense of dread and horror. And I don't know how you felt reading this, but I was like quite upset and really startled uh, going through some of this because the um, stench of death is just all-encompassing. And it's like this miasma that poisons everything and it makes every line just really fraught when you're going through it. Well, yeah, and the entire... Um... And, and and so something so so I read this many many years ago and I remember mm -hmm. not um like in high school and I remember not really um fully grasping like the 
character of Antony and what he was like going through. And so I found that the scene um, after Caesar has been killed and where they're showing him to Antony and he has to like feign like acceptance of what they've done. I was, I, I was, like, I was very, very like distraught reading that because it was, it Me was too. so, uh, um, you could tell that he was like in the moment, like in this instant, having to find an extremely eloquent way to get them to not just stab him then and there as well. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and suddenly just like in this instant, like really process everything that had happened. Okay. Now Caesar, Caesar stabbed on the floor. He's dead. I'm surrounded by these co-conspirators. They're literally covered in blood and holding daggers. And they're telling me, don't worry. Everything's fine. Everything's cool. Like, and I just felt like God, that is so terrifying. Oh, 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 terrifying. Bye, 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 bye,